Good morning. Welcome. You don't want the people on the podcast to feel like they missed something. You just got to come in fresh. Um, but uh, for the 17 of you that listen to the podcast, um, I know how many people watch the, listen to the podcast. It shows me, so I'm aware. And to the 17 of you, I got your back. So uh, welcome to church this morning. Welcome to Blue Ridge Church of Christ. Um, a, lot, a lot of you know our theme, uh, communal transformation, how we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ more and more and more, beginning at the day of our conversion, which for two of us will be today, uh, which is very good. Um, both Peter and Megan today uh, uh, will, will be able to go through that incredible process, uh, a part of that process, which is, which is baptism. Um, so very, very exciting. Today, uh, we're going to look at a piece of what transformation will look like. Last week was generous sharing, both, both in the way of money. Last Sunday was about how do we have generous hearts in terms of our money. Uh, Wednesday was about how can we be generous in terms of our time and our abilities. Um, so that's very cool, very exciting, very encouraging. I know that's always an uplifting thing because that means that more people get a chance to kind of have you on their radar. And they kind of lift you up and encourage you. And to really be reminded of what, the, what God's vision for his church really is. Which is not polite interaction once a week, but really is intimate uh, a relationship, mutual edification with one another. Um, and so that's exciting. It's uh, invigorating. Today we're going to talk about one aspect of that. Uh, we're looking at eight characteristics of the early church in regard to transformation. We've already looked at one another. Scripture. These all come from Acts 2.42, if you're curious uh, and wanna, want me to cite my sources here. Uh, one another, scripture, generous sharing, and today we're talking about prayer. Wednesday we're talking about prayer, and then next week we'll be talking about hospitality, um, which is a great one, because then we all start having each other in our homes more and more and more. Um, there was a brother yesterday who had some of the Yopro men over for dinner. It was incredible, um, but I won't say who, but you probably know who. Um, maybe you don't, but he did a great job. Uh, it was awesome. It was encouraging. Um, we got to come together. Even amidst North Carolina playing Virginia Tech, um, we got to come together and regardless of the result, uh, be unified. Um, so that was, that was inspiring. That was inspiring. It doesn't matter who won. It doesn't matter who won. Jesus won. That's what it is. Jesus won. So uh, hop over to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. And we're going to look at an incredible story. I just want to jump right in. I just want to jump right in. Genesis 18, verse 16. There's three men who visit Abraham in Genesis 18. It's called Three Visitors. It's kind of a cryptic story. But we're led to believe that one of them for sure is the Lord. The other two we can guess maybe are angels, angelic beings. Some people say Jesus. I don't know. We know one of them is the Lord. Genesis 18, 16 says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walking along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went down towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. 
Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you sweep away it and, and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city or for the, for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke up to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He said, I will not do it if there are 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been really bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, okay, please don't be angry for real this time, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Uh, I don't I usually just have one point today, three points, but they're all similar. First point, the first priest. So what we have here is a really strange story. There's no way about it, around it. It kind of actually seems like we have God and Abraham here like haggling over the price of melons in a marketplace. It's kind of strange. You have God and you have Abraham and Abraham's going back and forth and he's like slowly coming down with this number. It's kind of a weird prayer. It's kind of a weird interaction. But what it is, is actually, it is a prayer. It's actually the first recorded extended prayer in the Bible. And so this is actually an interaction is really Abraham going before God. He's really, he's really kind of praying to him. This is a really a conversation with God. And so we, we have a, a first example too of what's called priesting. Abraham going before God uh, for other people to get a request granted, right? That's prayer, pretty much. So this is what Abraham's doing. Um, what's interesting is Abraham's not technically the first priest. So some of you out there are going, what about Melchizedek? Okay, Melchizedek was the first priest. I know you're thinking that, Bobby, but he is, for sure. But uh, this is the first recorded example we have of a, of a priestly interaction. That is, someone going before God to intercede for others, which is what Abraham's doing, which is pretty incredible. But it's sort of a strange passage and we don't, I don't know that I necessarily grew up really liking this passage. It seemed like God was kind of the bad guy, and Abraham's the one with all the compassion and trying to help God kind of back off his, his judgment a little bit. And that only with some great um, um, argument, argumentation is God able to back off of his wrath. That's what it seems to me, that God is sort of a, a God who loves to punish. And I, and I don't like that. I don't know that many of us like that kind of God. Um, but what's, what's great about some of the vocab here, I want to just kind of dive in. It says the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that their sin is so grievous, right? The outcry. The word outcry in Hebrew is a, a word used throughout the entire Old Testament to basically mean the cries of the oppressed. People who are victims of cruelty, violence, and injustice. In fact, in Ezekiel 16.49, Ezekiel, if you're interested in writing that down, Ezekiel 16.49 it says, now this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. 
So what was the issue? Well, God's going down to Abraham, or sorry, God's going down to Sodom because he's heard an outcry. He's heard an outcry. There's, 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 there's victims there of cruelty and violence and injustice. And a lot of times, we don't really like the idea of a judging God. And sometimes we can even hear this in Charlottesville. Sometimes we can even feel this in this room of, I don't believe in a judging God. I believe in a merciful God. Like, I don't believe in a God who judges. And that can be kind of a Charlottesville thing. That can be kind of a popular thing to say. But you can't really have it both ways. It's kind of an overly simplistic way to view it. Because you can't have a, a God, uh, I guess I put it like this. A God who never judges isn't merciful. Because God has to hear the outcry. He hears the outcry of the victims, of the oppressed. He actually is compassionate toward those being hurt. So he has to go down to Sodom to kind of see what's going on here, to, to investigate. Now you say, why? Why does he have to do that? He's God. Can't he like, you know, doesn't he know? Or can't he fly down and invest? Why? But you could might as well just ask, well, why did he approach, you know, Abraham there? And why did he walk? Why did he show up? Well, I think it's because God wants to approach us in an accessible way. Why did Jesus come down in, in human form? Well, he, he wants it to be familiar and accessible. So we have God here, and he, he's actually concerned about this outcry. So he goes down, and what's great is Abraham is invited by God to intervent, to, 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 toward intervention, right? It says the men go down, and then it says God kind of hangs on back there with Abraham. And then God says this sort of interesting thing, right? He goes, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And some of us, that, sometimes that happens. I do that a lot, where I'm like, man, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but... If I say that, I've already decided I'm probably going to tell that guy something, right? But, but, I've, but he's going, man, I wonder if I should tell Abraham. So God's actually inviting Abraham in. And even this word, uh, isn't it cool? It says, God's going down, but it says, I want to see how bad the outcry is. If it's not as bad, I'll know. Well, that word, if not, it's a great Hebrew word. It's, it's, it's the word um, from Genesis uh, um, Four, about Cain and Abel, where it says, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, and you might master it. You may master it. It's sort of up in the air. It's a toss of a coin. Now here is God saying, it's, that's where God leaves the door open for, for Abraham. God's like, I'm heading down there to investigate, but I want to know what you think. He's actually inviting Abraham in toward a conversation. That's incredible. God actually invites Abraham's response. He opens himself up to it. Uh, he's not saying, this is my choice, you're out, you're gone. God actually opens himself up to this. Uh, and he actually invites Abraham to be Sodom's legal representative. Because the word approach there in Hebrew is a technical word. Because it says it's kind of confusing, right? If you read it, it says Abraham was standing before the Lord, and then he approached him. But what does that mean? Does that mean he like, was standing a foot away and then took six inches closer? Like, what does it mean? He's already there. Well, how did, what do you mean he approached? Well, the, the word is, is sort of a technical term that means to approach the bench with a case. Like a lawyer. It's like a, a, a defense attorney before a judge. So Abraham's like, okay, I'm here with God, but you know what? I want to bring my case forward. I want to I I defend this, this city, Sodom. And so God's actually inviting Abraham in to do that, to be their legal representative. And Abraham approaches the bench, which is incredible to think about. Abraham, and he does three things with God. He does three things before God, as, as a good priest does. He, he, he's, he's universal, he's theological, and he's partial. First of all, universal. Who is he pleading for? He's pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. Who lives in Sodom and Gomorrah? Canaanites. Canaanites are not good people. Canaanites are the people, they're the enemy of the Lord's people. They're actually people that Abraham had to fight off with swords and weapons and things. These are people that want to kill him, that have tried to kill him in the past. Why is Abraham interceding for these people? He goes and he's begging for God to spare that city? Be like one of us praying really hard, you know, for Baghdad. 
right? Be like, okay, maybe we do that, but it's not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind. Sure, we'll pray for Houston. Sure, we'll pray, pray for Vegas. Well, yeah, because they're American cities. But no, how about we pray for Istanbul? You know what I mean? So there's sort of a sense there of like, okay, there's something unusual going on, something sort of special about Abraham approaching God with this certain case. It's not that his mom feels better. It's not that his kid gets better. It's no, he's actually interceding for his enemy. He's actually speaking up, going before the Lord. And it's very risky to go before the Lord. Hagar in the book of Genesis thought she might die when the Lord approached her, right? There's a lot of people in the Bible approached by the Lord thinking, I'm going to die. This is risky. But, but Abraham actually, he assesses the risk. and says, you know what? I'm still going to risk my life to, to intercede on behalf of my enemy, which is incredible. So he does. He pleads for these Canaanites. And he starts with 50, right? And he's like, he kind of, he kind of attacks God. Was anybody kind of amazed by that with God there? He kind of says, he goes, I thought you were a loving God. Are you kidding? Are you, are you going to kill these people? Well, here's the thing. What, what he's doing here is not so much questions. They're more rhetorical questions. He's, an author said, uh, wrote that it's a deep theological ex- exploration. That he's actually kind of wrestling with who God is. Because a defense attorney doesn't um, try to change the law. A def- defense attorney operates with the law as given. For example, a defense attorney doesn't show up and say, my client broke the law, judge, but it's really a stupid law. Can we change the law? It's really kind of a dumb law here. No, a, a defense attorney doesn't do that. They operate with the law as given. And so Abraham shows up with knowing that God loves righteousness. He goes, I know that you love righteousness, God. If that's the case, how can what, what's going to happen be about to happen? I don't really get it. And so Abraham's wrestling with his sense of who God is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a prayer where he's really struggling. And that word spare, will you really not spare the whole place? That word spare is forgive. Oh, and now we're starting to get it, right? So Abraham's wrestling with something deeper than just Sodom. He's saying, will you, will you not forgive these people? How often does this happen with us? All the time. God, can't you forgive them? It seems like you don't forgive them. It's, why can't you forgive? It's not fair. It's not just. We see tragedy in the world. We see issues in our own life. We think, why does God make me jump through all these hoops? Why can't he just love me? You know, this is a wrestling that we all do with God. And Abraham's doing it here. He's saying, will you not spare the place for 50 people? And he says that famous verse there at the end, right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? He's doing a deep theological exploration. But what's amazing here is he keeps challenging God. He's very bold. Uh, he says, all right, God, 50. All right, 40. All right, 35, 30. How about 20, 10? And each time, I love God. How God, great is God? God's patient. He goes, I'll save it. I'll save it. I'll save it. I'll save him. I'll save him. So what Abraham's, with each question, Abraham is learning a principle. He's learning a truth about God. That God will actually value the righteousness of the few over the unrighteousness of the many. That God values righteousness that much. And he's learning. He's going, how about 50? Is that enough? Because Abraham understands something. You know, and he's also realizing something about God, which is that God's will to save is much more powerful than his will to destroy. God is saying, yes, 50, 40, keep it going, 30, 20. Yes, I'll save it, I'll save it. God's like, no, I, I want to save Sodom. I'm not going down there to destroy it because I want to. And so Abraham is learning this as he's praying. How cool is that? That you can actually kind of learn, you know what, that's not, that's not God. That's not God. That's not, okay, I get it now. And so Abraham is starting to understand something because Abraham gets something that we don't get. We live in a world of individualism. We live in the most individualistic society in the history of the world. 
What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means that we think that I'm only responsible for what I've done. And we teach that. And we actually kind of agree with that. I'm not responsible for what mom did. That's mom. I'm only responsible for Drew. I'm not responsible for even what my people have done. Now, this is a big one, too, because, you know, you say, okay, well, Drew, you know, people say this, right? Because, because someone is white, they've, they partake in the sins of their race, right? And, and we can be uncomfortable with that. Like, no, 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 like, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't part, you know, even like in terms of the African slave trade, like, right? You say, like, no, you're participating in the benefits of being white. That, 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 that's your people. You, you're sharing in that corporate responsibility. And we hear that and we go, oh, no, 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 especially if you're white, right? No, 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 that's not, I wasn't there, I didn't, I didn't do it. But other people in the world might say, no, that actually makes a lot of sense. They understand a lot of people in the world nowadays and in the history of the world understand and have a more balanced view of responsibility. We're way over here on individual responsibility. We, we, we today, especially in the West, the West, Westerners, we love, it's, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. It's, it's just me. Look at me. We don't want to have responsibility corporately. Anybody we're in solidarity with, we say it's not my fault. But for Abraham and the people that he lived with, they understood corporate responsibility. We read a story like uh, from Joshua 7, Achan's sin. It's a, it's a rough one for us because we're, 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 we're Americans and we live in the West and all these things. But Achan's sin is Achan basically steals a bunch of gold from the temple. It's all the money that is, is plundered isn't supposed to go toward selfishness and toward like personal account. It's supposed to go toward the temple. But Achan steals the gold. He hides it under his tent and they kill his whole family because of it. And we read it and we go, oh, no, 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 why? It's not, it's not his wife's fault. It's not his kid's fault. It's not fair. But most people in the world read that story and go, makes sense. I get that. It's not, not, not crazy. Yeah, it's his family. They were, they were a part of that. They were responsible as well. And so what Abraham's doing is he knows that there is such a thing as corporate responsibility, at least in his culture, right? That you are responsible, at least in part, for the sins of others. So he's, he's doing something incredible. He's doing the reverse, He's going, okay, okay, God, I know that my sin can affect others. How about my righteousness? Will the righteousness of 50 be enough to save Sodom? He's working in reverse. And you can see how Abraham is bold, right? He said, okay, how about, some, how about a new kind of corporate responsibility? He's not saying, hey, God, let's go from corporate responsibility to individualism. No, no, no. He's saying, let's go from corporate responsibility to a new kind of corporate connection. But how about, how about a reversal where it's not my sin, it's actually my righteousness? Is the righteousness of 10 people, is that enough to, can that spread throughout the whole people of Sodom? Will that save them? He's attacking this principle and he's really trying to wrestle with this principle. And someone who, with whom you're in solidarity, right? Someone that you're in solidarity with. Uh, and he's wrestling with it. And then right when it gets to the climax, he goes home. Why? He got to 10, 50, even 45. Why 45? He broke the pattern. 45, 30, 20, 10, touchdown, right? No, he didn't get the touchdown. He stopped at 10. Why did he stop at 10? Why does he go home? Why does he leave? It's almost like we're watching an incredible movie where Bruce Willis has to like defuse the bomb. But if he defuses the bomb, his girlfriend dies. He's caught between this incredible dilemma of what to do. And then like, he just goes, I'm going home. You're going, no, you gotta, you gotta do it. You gotta, which, what are you gonna do? What's the climax here? We're building, we're building. And he's being amazed over and over again. He's going, wow, God loves that much? God loves that much? God loves that much? All right, I'm going home. You're kind of like, all right, well, what was this really about? Well, a couple things. I think probably Abraham got the point. 
Abraham understood the principle that God values the righteousness of the few that much over the unrighteousness of the many. That's the principle that Abraham leaves with. The other possibility, the other possibility, pause for suspense. The other possibility is that the next step is one, right? Abraham had no one to ask about. It was just Lot. That's his, his connection there, right? Lot is his connection in Sodom. So all he can do at that point is say, what about Lot? Is Lot's righteousness enough? That's the next question, but he doesn't ask it. Because as great as Lot is, he's only partially righteous. Abraham knows that there's not one person that he can call upon to say, well, they're enough. He can't. But 10 back then was kind of seen as enough for a synagogue. 10 was viewed as a community back then, right? So 10 is, okay, a, 10, a community of 10, yeah, that should be enough. But less than 10, I don't know of anybody that can cover that. So I'm going to go home because 10 is kind of my best hope. There's not one person whose righteousness can cover the unrighteousness of that many people. It's an, un, it's an unfinished symphony. But what's good about it is that Abraham, he gets, he gets the principle, which is nice, because Abraham sees this great distance between himself and God, or at least the people and God, and he tries to intercede. He's a great priest. Abraham's a great priest here, right? And he, it's almost like he looks at this impregnable mountain range, and he goes, how do I, how, how do we, I can't do that. We can't achieve righteousness on our own. But then he sees this little mountain path, and he goes, wow, okay, there, there actually is a hope. There's hope. We need the, the righteousness of the few to cover the, righteous, the unrighteousness of the many. It's, it's, it's a great hope. And what he realizes is we need a great high priest. But Abraham doesn't have one. There's no one to call upon at that time. You know, we all need a great high priest. We all need that. We are Sodom, right? And my next point is the greatest priest. Okay, the first priest and then the greatest priest. We all need a great high priest. We are, and this is the good news. The bad news is, hey, bro, God is holy. Uh, if we study out your sin for like 10 minutes, you're going to realize how far away you are from him. You cannot achieve intimacy with him on your own. That's bad news. I'm sorry. Uh, and even though God, God's desire, his will to save is greater than his will to destroy, we're still kind of in trouble here. We don't really have a lifeline. But Abraham realizes, wow, okay, but a, a high priest, that can be enough. Somebody whose righteousness is so incredible, it can cover the sins of many. It's starting to sound familiar, isn't it? Yeah. It's starting to sound familiar. Abraham's a great priest, and he calls us to be great priests, but Abraham's not, a, he's not the greatest priest. The greatest priest, Abraham goes before God. I mean, really, like, you know, hat in hands, boots shaking, like, it says that he's dust, he feels like he's dust and ashes there. Like, it's incredibly fearful to go before the living God. But Abraham does. And he does for people that hate him. For people that will probably kill him. He risks his life and before the living God. A God whose presence might overwhelm and kill him. He risks his life. But he goes and he pleads his case. He intercedes for these people. But you know, Jesus doesn't go before God for a people who might kill him. He goes before, a, for, goes before God for a people that did kill him and that would kill him that he knew would kill him abraham risked his life christ gave his life abraham pleads for his enemies jesus forgives his enemies even as he's being crucified father forgive them 
They do not know what they're doing. Jesus intercedes for those whom he knew would kill him. And not just a physical death, but a spiritual death in the full wrath of God to the depths of hell for three days. That's what Jesus had. But what's great about Jesus, and in John 17, the great high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays for you. And he says this quote, he says, for their sake, I sanctify myself. What's he saying? This is it. I'm becoming the great high priest. I'm going to sanctify myself. That that word just means holy. I'm going to purify myself. I'm going to become the righteous one. I'm going to become their bridge. All a priest is, is a bridge, right? You need a priest to access God. Jesus becomes our bridge. And if you even look at it, this is kind of how it is, right? We have God and people in a great expanse. But the priest comes in to connect the two. Abraham tries to do that, and he does quite a good job with Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus does that with us. He comes in, and he he intercedes. He says, I know, Clarissa, you're not going to have enough, so I'm going to come in, and I'm going to become that righteous one, because the principle works. God values the righteousness of Jesus so much that it can cover your unrighteousness, your filth, your sin, your nastiness, the stuff that you don't even want to talk about, the stuff that happened this week that you were kind of deceitful about when you confessed it because you were afraid of what people might think. That's the stuff that Jesus decides, you know what, that unrighteousness, put it all on me because I'm the one. I'm the access. I'm the the little road through the impregnable mountain pass. I am the access point. Jesus, but in order to do that, you have to do two things, right? You have to be able to connect both to God, which means you have to be bold. I mean, bold, bold, bold. Like Abraham was bold, right? You have to be bold, uh, you also have to have sympathy for the people. You know, Jesus, uh, this is what he is. He's, he becomes a bridge for us. And when you become a disciple of Christ, you enter into solidarity with him. So we talked about corporate responsibility, right? So today, when Peter gets baptized and Megan get baptized, they're entering into solidarity with Christ. So now they're saying, Christ is saying, hey, there, that's my guy. That's my, that's my gal. They're with me. My righteousness will cover over their unrighteousness. They're with me. Right? That's what Jesus is doing. And that's the gift of baptism, right? And repentance is that we get to partake in that death, burial, and resurrection, that sanctifying process, which is incredible. And it's a good news, right? It's very good news. This is the good news that should drive us to to share our faith. Not, hey, if if you sin, like, you know, God won't really care about that anymore. No, no, no. We actually get access to God because of his incredible mercy and forgiveness that he values he values righteousness so much. He, his will to save is so much stronger than his will to destroy. Now, here's the next thing, though. Christ is an incredible high priest. He's a perfect high priest because of Hebrews 7, 24. Because uh, Abraham approached God once. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 7, 24, Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. You know that song? Um, I know that my Redeemer lives and ever prays for me, right? I know eternal life he gives from sin and sorrow free. Like, he's always praying. He's always living. He's constantly at the bench before the judge, interceding for you. We always have Jesus. Once you enter into solidarity with him, you always have him. And that's incredible. And you know what's great in Luke twenty-two thirty-two? if you want to jot that down? Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Jesus says to Simon, Simon, you're going to betray, betray me, but I've prayed for you. 
He doesn't say, Simon, you're going to betray me, but you know what? You're going to really bounce back and you're going to do great things. He says, no, I prayed for you. I'm interceding for you. I'm going to God to back you up. I am the greater Abraham. Even though you're my enemy, even though it's, it, it, risked, it caused me to risk everything, I'm going to God for you. Now, here's the hard part. Here's the hard part as we keep moving on, right? Is that we have the, the first priest in Abraham, the greatest priest in Jesus. And that's all very encouraging. But now we have to, we can't end the sermon there because it's all, it's all well and good. But it has to mean something to us. It has to change our lives. And so the, the, the last one is the new priest. Okay. The new priest. Now, Revelation, I don't know a lot of scriptures at you, sorry, but it's on the live stream. If you want to check it out, check it off. Uh, check it out. Um, don't check it off your list. I mean, you know, that's your lifestyle. Revelation 1.6. Revelation 1.6 says that God has made us kings and priests. Okay. 1 Peter 2 says we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So who's the new priest? Us. When you enter into solidarity with Christ, for me it was February 21st, 2003, right? Uh, that was the day I got baptized. When I enter into that solidarity, right, I am, my goal is to be a new priest. Now, here's where a lot of books fall short in regard to this. And we do this a lot. We've got to be careful. I've got to be careful not to even do it now. We read this and we go, it's all well and good. So you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go be like Abraham. I'm going to go connect. I'm going to go bring people together, right? That's probably what you're thinking. I'm going to go pray for them. I'm going to go intercede. I'm going to go be able to be greatly sympathetic with people, but also really bold and intimate with God in prayer. I'm going to go be able to do that. And we can, we can even feel that. We can even feel like with Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. But any failure to be like Abraham will be because we do not see the one to whom Abraham points. And a lot of us today may even feel like, I, I know this. I know this. I get this. I get this. But do we really get it? Because if you knew it, you'd be like him. If you knew it, uh, you wouldn't be on one side or the other. And we tend to be, right? We, we don't tend to be all, both perfectly balanced. Uh, I don't want you to be like Abraham, and I don't want you to be like Jesus, okay? Don't do it, because that, that's a morality argument there. Let's go be like him. Go pray harder. Go be nicer people. But you're going to fall short. Spoiler alert, you're going to fall short. A lot of us, uh, we can't do it. We cannot be... How's your prayer life? Are you perfectly intimate with God in your prayer life? Are you bold? Now, a lot of us struggle to be bold with God, especially conservative people, because we go, it's not respectful. I'm not going to ask God for that because it's not respectful. Like that's, you know. And then liber- certain liberal people will go, they struggle with being uh, humble before God. They don't want to be dust and ashes. They're like, no, I'm something, right? But Abraham's able to be dust and ashes and bold in the same sentence. Abraham's able to be perfectly humble, but also perfectly bold. That's really tough to do. Most of us are on one side or the other. This week, you'll probably have a bad day and you'll be very aware of your humility. You may have a great day and be like, I'm really confident, but you're not usually both. It's hard to be both. Usually we're on one side or the other. You know, a priest is scared of no one and disdainful of no one. A priest is scared of no one and disdainful of no one. You know, a lot of us, we struggle with these things. Are you disdainful of others? Who do you look down your nose at? Who do you look down on? Who do you look up to? A lot of us feel either inferior to people or superior to people. Both of those fail to grasp the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We can't, and that, that's kind of our nature. That's me, by the way. We can, none of us can sit here thinking we're good this morning. Like, this is me. I was, I, was, I was praying this morning, like, I don't even really get this quite yet. I'm still wrapping my, my head and my heart around it. But we've got to have a heart to say, 
okay, how am I missing the priesthood of Christ? And it's difficult. We want, I want to give you a practical and say, go home and do this. But you know, really all it is is that we're able to relish, savor, appreciate, and rejoice in the high priestliness of Jesus. That's where it is. And that's difficult. But if we can do that, we'll be able to be down the right track. But all it is is an awareness of that, a great awareness, right? Failures to be like Abraham all stem from the inability to truly believe in the one to whom Abraham points. We can't just go home and try to be like Abraham. Do you have a servant heart? Or do you put people off? Do you struggle in your prayer life? Are you perfectly intimate in your prayer life? A lot of us, we're not. I mean, we're, we're serving one day and not serving the other. We have a great prayer one day, and then we just kind of say our prayers the next day. It's just kind of like, dear God, help me to have a good day at school, right? That's kind of what I prayed growing up every day. We don't, we don't always have a great prayer life. We don't, we're not always going to be able to have servant hearts. But that we don't have to go out and just try to force those things to happen. You may say Jesus is your high priest, but you don't practice it. We may say, yeah, Jesus is my guy, but we don't practice it. We don't rest in, relish, savor, and rejoice in Jesus as our high priest. Abraham is bold, but he's also dust and ashes in the same sentence because he understands the gospel. Even back then, Abraham understands the gospel, and he's working with a lot less than you are, right? Abraham understood that, you know what? There's this beautiful, listen to this. I'm going to try to say it slow. This is beautiful. Not this one. Let's see, I built it up. This next thing. But this next thing, now you're going to undervalue this thing. Uh, But Jesus is not just your helper and example. He's not just, you know, he is those things. He is your helper and he is your, but he's not just your helper and example. He's also your high priest. This leads, if we can get there, if we can rest in and relish and rejoice and savor that, this leads to a counterintuitive combination of boldness and humility that no other spiritual condition can create. Religion cannot create it, and irreligion cannot create it. It's beautiful that we cannot, it is, it is a counterintuitive combination of being able to be bold, but also humble. Because in the presence of the high priest, you're aware of your sin. He's holy, he's perfect, he's Jesus. If you're aware of that, you're going, I, I'm aware of my shortcoming. So you're not, you, you can't feel superior. Superior, gone, because you're aware of your sin. But you also realize you have Jesus, so you're incredibly bold. You see what I'm saying? So you're able to have both, and nothing in the world can create that. That counterintuitive combination of boldness and humility, that all comes from realizing, relishing, appreciating that Jesus is our high priest. In the high priest, you are utterly flawed, so you're humble. You can't feel superior. But in Christ, you're righteous and loved, so you can't feel inferior. A lot of us go between the two. By feeling inferior or superior to anyone else means that you are failing to recognize or appropriate Jesus as your high priest. We feel, who do you look down on? What type of people do you look down on? What type of people do you look up to? There's, there's people, some of us, we, we, we look down on uh, smart people, look down on successful people, we look down on uh, good-looking people, we look down on people uh, who look different than us, we look down on people who make less money, more money, who dress different, who, who, we, just, we judge people every which way. We look down on them. We look up to people. We glorify people. We idolize people. Any of this is failing to really see Jesus as our high priest. Because the beautiful, what God's given us is, is good news. It's an impregnable mountain pass, but this little, little sliver of hope, this access point of Jesus, that God will value the righteousness of Jesus so much 
that that will be appropriated. It will be sent, it will be put on whoever he's in solidarity with. For those of you today that are studying the Bible to become a disciple, I want to say something. Any failure to be like Abraham will not be remedied by trying to pray harder or be nicer people. Any failure to be like Jesus will not be remedied by leaving here and trying to pray harder and be nicer people. It simply will not work. We've got to take hold of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. When you get, when you get baptized, you don't, need to, you don't need to know much. Just do you know Jesus is your high priest? Is Jesus your Lord? Okay, that's enough. Sometimes we get into this mindset of we have to approach A, B, C, and D in our character before we, before we decide to follow Jesus. But all that is is about making us feel better. Because, oh, I've, I've really gotten a lot better, so now I can actually approach Christ. You're never going to be able to approach Christ. You could be a Christian for 50 years. Like, I've, we haven't achieved it. Stop trying to achieve it. Let go of your pride and find humility, right, in the high priest. Let go of your insecurity and find boldness in the high priest. That this is the plan. And as great as Abraham was, he didn't have what we have. He didn't have Christ. Let's practice, rejoice, and live in accord with the reality that Jesus is our high priest. Here's the great thing. I want to close out with this. And it's one of those times when I really mean it, that I am going to close out with this uh, and not go for 20 more minutes. But little communities, and this is probably why Abraham stops at 10. Little communities, even of 10 people that have the kind of joy in their heart, the kind of access to God, that kind of intercessory prayer for their friends and neighbors can heal broken cities. Priestly communities will redeem broken cities. Even 10, 10 people, 10 people like this that can know Jesus as their high priest, they will be humble, they will be bold. People in the world will be like, who are you? What is going on? How are you able to be that, that contrite, but also that excited and confident? Where are you getting this from? We're getting it from our high priest. That we have the first priest in Abraham, the greatest priest in Jesus, and the new priest, you. That this is your challenge, is to go know that Jesus is your high priest. And you know it's know what, that any sort of... We, don't, we know that if we, if we really find security in Christ, these things will happen, but we don't go to try to make it happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. When you really love someone, you don't have to think, oh man, I really better, I really get her, better get Jenny something for her birthday this year or else she might get mad and I want to make sure she thinks I'm a good husband, so let me get her a birthday gift. Uh, that's not the heart I, sh- I should have, right? I mean, if I, if I love my wife, I'm thinking, what does she want? How can I encourage her? What can I get her? Because I want to do this. So when we have the heart... All the actions get a lot easier. We try to fix the action and the root is still rotten. Let's dig the root out, church. Let's go. And Jesus knows that. He wants to be able to be our high priest. And let's be encouraged, church, that priestly communities can redeem broken cities. Amen. And to God be the glory. So a little bit different uh, right now. We're actually going to have... Uh, the baptism folks come up. So if Megan wants to come up with the JMU gals, they're going to come up, have some sharing. They're going to uh, ask a couple questions. They're going to sit down, and then we'll have the JMU guys come up uh, with Peter Kafos, and then he'll, get, he'll have his sharing. Uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll pray, have one final song. We're actually going to sing, I Will Call Upon the Lord, which I'm excited about based on what we just heard. Let's call upon the Lord together. And let's know that our, you know, our Redeemer lives and ever prays for us. Even when we, when we sing these songs, to realize the power of what we're singing. I'm going to hand it over to the JNU gals and cut the live stream. Thanks.
Megan. Hi. Um, so she is a sophomore at UAU, and it's just a good joy to be a class with her. It's been amazing just to see the ways um, that she has gone after this week. So, so thrilled for this new life. I thought um, that was the perfect message because I think uh, even just things that Megan has gone. 